Hey, Blau. Hey, bud. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Perfect. Great. Well, uh, thank you so much again for, for making the time. Um, it, it's very cool to have you on. I, I, I imagine you kind of stumbled upon some of my stuff, uh, given your involvement and, and interest in crypto. Um, I've been fortunate to have a few crypto guests, uh, Vitalik and uh, Roger Ver and, and some others, uh, Anthony Pompliano, to name a few. Um, and it's one of a number of things I'm really interested in, but as much as possible, I'm trying to make this a, a generalist podcast, right? So like, uh, Rogan, you mentioned earlier is, is one of my favorites and, uh, he just kind of has whoever he's interested in talking to on the show. Uh, so I'm thrilled to have a, a musician and a producer that, uh, I'm very familiar with from the past. I'm not like the biggest EDM guy in the world, but it's a category of music that I've certainly listened to my fair share of. Um, and was very familiar with your stuff. So, uh, it's really cool to have you on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, uh, I, I remember, uh, I, I think I'm trying to think where I initially connected with the podcast. I think Keith tweeted about it. I think that's, I think that's how I, how I, how I got, how I first heard about it. Yeah, Keith is uh, is an, an awesome investor from my perspective, obviously spent a good time operating as well. Um, but I've noticed like I was just looking at your Twitter and you're, you know, obviously you're like a DJ and a producer first and foremost, but you've also, you know, I see the types of people that you're retweeting are like Paul Graham and Naval. Um, <laughs> you're, you're not like just your everyday DJ who's purely focused on the music. You've got an interesting background. So maybe, it, maybe it'd be best we start there. Um, I've somewhat familiarized myself, but would love to hear for, for those listening who maybe aren't familiar with, with your past, um, just kind of take us to, you know, from, from the top to where you are today. Yeah, sure, man. Um, that's a, I'll, I'll keep it as brief as possible, but I, by, by all means go, go into all the details, just, uh, you know, the floor is all yours. Yeah. So, um, in college I was surrounded by a lot of people that had a lot of interest in tech one of my roommates ended up dropping out his sophomore year to go work for Square. He was like one of the earlier, you know, I think probably within employee 50 at Square. Um, and another one of my friends ended up uh, co-founding Open Door with Keith um, from college. And that's kind of how I know Keith through, through uh, JD, who I went to college with. I actually played in his frat basement. That was one of my first shows ever when I was like 18 years old. So, I was constantly surrounded by tech in, in college and was always fascinated by it. In, in many ways, my entire career was built out of, you know, tech and social media combination of Facebook distribution and SoundCloud. But I was studying finance in college and I was, you know, I've always had like this combination fascination in, with music and also with math. A lot of music is mathematical. So it's not a surprise um, that I kind of have strong interest in both. But in college, I, I spent a lot of time, you know, assuming that I was going to go work for an investment bank. Um, I ended up getting an offer to go work at BlackRock asset management, which was kind of my dream. I loved that aspect of, of the financial world. And I was also doing music on the side um, just as a hobby. What ended up happening though, was the music took off virally via YouTube, Facebook, all these other platforms. And all of a sudden there was this demand for me to go to other colleges and play shows on other college campuses. And I would get paid like great chunk of money for being 18, 19 years old at the time. 
to, you know, fly on the weekends to, I remember my first show was in Georgia, was at Georgia tech university 10 years ago. I made like 750 bucks, which was like awesome. I played for the, paid for the plane ticket round trip. It was like 200 bucks. I stayed in the frat house and like, you know, netted about 500 bucks at the end of the day. And like in, in college, that's, that's awesome. And it's like a super fun thing to do on the weekends. So that's how it all started. And it escalated pretty quickly to the point where I met my agent who now works at CAA, but at the time was had his own agency in Nashville called PGA. And I met my agent through one of his interns that was just kind of watching what I was doing. And that kind of opened up this whole new world of shows while I was still a junior in college where I would like, I'd literally start leaving every single weekend and I'd have like two shows a weekend. And that's when my grades started to slip. This is like I said, junior year. Um, so I'd already had this like amazing opportunity at BlackRock and uh, to go kind of intern and then eventually work there. But the music stuff was like too profitable to ignore it. And it kept growing and it grew so quickly that I actually ended up dropping out at the end of my junior year with the endorsement of my economics professor, who was one of my mentors in college. Um, I went to Washington St. Louis. I don't know if I mentioned that yet, but um, my economics professor actually convinced my parents to let me to let me leave um, because they told me that I could keep my scholarship for seven years and I could come back whenever if, if it didn't work out. But he, my professor felt that like the opportunity cost of me not trying to pursue it full time was too high. He convinced my parents of that. And that's when I moved back home and started touring full time. And it was like a really weird time in life because I had been like so glued to this track of being in finance for a really long time. And twisting that around and moving into the entertainment space was, was a full 180, but something that was always like a distant dream that became reality. So that, that all kind of happened when I was 20. And then by the time I was 21, my agent who I'd met, you know, just through one of his interns who had pitched me, um, he helped build me up within like the non-college fraternity community and got me real club gigs. Um, at which I performed pretty well, I guess, because they kept booking me. And that's when things started to escalate around uh, 2012 and 2013, when I started playing more festivals and more like major clubs and major cities and building my audience that way. Um, and then fast forward one more year to 2014, when I had this, I had a hit song called How You Love Me that went number one at dance radio. And that kind of like blew the whole thing into the next level. Um, and I became you know, a little bit more established and I, I felt way more secure pursuing a career as a musician full time, um, financially. Um, so that was, that was a really exciting time. And I think, you know, along the way th there were a lot of points where, you know, obviously my main focus was music, but because I had that financial background, um, I did spend a lot of time taking care of any capital that I earned and, and making sure to deploy it in the right places. And I always kind of wanted to be a more financially literate musician than, you know, the stories that you hear of many musicians going bankrupt, spending too much money, not, you know, paying mine to good investment strategy. And I was lucky to have a lot of other smart friends in college who could guide that process. So, you know, that's kind of the, the, the beginning of the story, but that's also why I've always followed tech so closely because I've always felt that, you know, being in the entertainment space, having a pretty decent understanding of what products consumers generally like to interact with, I've always felt that, you know, I've had a pretty good grasp on what platforms will grow and what might fade. Um, 
the perfect example of that is when Snapchat came out, I was probably one of the first people blowing it up, exploding it. Um, I met the team. I went to their offices in LA really early on. I had, I had like pitched it to all my friends and who were artists because I felt that there wasn't another platform at the time. At the time there was no such thing as an Instagram story. Um, and there were like DMS weren't photo DMS. So Snapchat was the first platform that you can interact with fans on a deeper level than you ever could before. And I was using it so much like fans would send me Snapchats of shows. I would like put a full show and backstage, you know, clips on my story and people were going nuts for that stuff. So there's this inherent connection to tech platforms that are entertainment based and music. And I just have always enjoyed the intersection of those two and explored it along the way of my career. Yeah, it's, it's an amazing story. And, uh, you know, you talked about being in college and, and starting with the weekend gigs and by junior year, your, your grades were starting to fall off because you're doing all these weekend shows, but you're making good money. And then you've got this agent. Uh, you know, I've, I've certainly heard people's grades falling for, for a lot less valid reasons. And I think you had, uh, fortunately, that economics professor who was kind of had the foresight to see that you had a very legitimate opportunity. And I'm sure you knew it at the, at the time as well, but uh, I'm sure that was helpful for, for convincing your parents and, and whatnot. Um, looking back now, uh, you know, I, I hear a lot like Bezos is a good example. He talks about, cause he was working at a hedge fund when he was in his early thirties, I think, um, and had the idea for Amazon. And he talks about how he went to the park with one of his bosses and he had this idea for the online bookstore. And his boss was like, Jeff, that's a, you know, that's a great idea for someone who's not already making, you know, six figures and, and on track to have a great life. Uh, was there some semblance of, of that for you where like, you know, BlackRock is a, a very name brand financial firm. Like I started my two years out of, out of school and banking myself. So I'm very familiar with, you know, the, the cutthroat competition. It's not easy to land an internship and then a job at, at BlackRock was there a part of you that was indecisive as well? It's like, you know, this music thing's working, but um, this is, you know, a, a calculated risk versus something that seems like a sure thing. Yeah. I mean, it was a, that's a really good perspective. I think you said it really well. It was exactly that. It was a calculated risk of, you know, I have this guaranteed life path, but then I also have this passion that's generating real income. And the, the point at which I decided to make the switch was actually the point at which my, it was, it was very, I analyzed it from a very analytical standpoint. It wasn't that emotional. It was when my income from DJing exceeded my first year salary as a first year analyst, that's when I decided it was time to take it more seriously. So it was literally at that point in time where I went to my parents and I was like, guys, I'm making more than 130,000 a year doing this. Um, it was only over a six month period and we were already there. And that's when I, you know, told my economics professor, asked him for his advice, told my parents, my parents were reluctant, but luckily enough, I did have a full merit scholarship. So they couldn't really say anything to me because like they weren't paying for it, you know? Um, but I was lucky to, in the moment, you know, in hindsight, it actually feels like it was a bigger risk than in the moment. In the moment, I kind of just knew it was my calling. It was like a gut emotional feeling that I knew I needed to do it. Um, but like I said, you know, the actual decision of when to drop out was a very analytical one. It was, I know that I can survive doing this. And then I also found out that I could go back to school if it didn't work out. So it was like, there was almost no risk except for the years that I would spend doing it. But at, th at that point it was like in such an upward trajectory that I almost didn't feel like it would fail. 
in hindsight, it was probably a pretty risky decision, but in the moment it was, oh, I'm making more money than I would otherwise. And this is something that I can, you know, that I enjoy more. And I will say this, I apply my knowledge from the financial world in my music life on a daily basis. In fact, I think that like most musicians have a shorter career because they don't have financial oriented goals. Um, that's not to say that I make music to make money because I don't, but I think that like, it's very easy to get taken, taken advantage of in the music business. And a lot of the time, if you are taken advantage of, it ruins your chances at longevity. So keeping, you know, for instance, like I might be a rare breed in the sense that I've been pretty much independent for my entire career. I've done individual releases with big record labels, but I've never signed a long-term record deal because I didn't want to be locked into uh, you know, lack of flexibility as you know, I'm sure everyone's heard who's listening, the stereotypical record label deal that locks you up for a really long time and censors your ability to create. Um, it's pretty accurate for most people that that's that, that um, narrative is probably true. But for me, I never, I just never wanted to go down that path. I wanted to maintain control and maintain equity in, in all of my work and in my, you know, live show revenue. And I don't think I would have had that perspective if I didn't come from a business background. And at the time, like, you know, when you think of a VC investing in a tech startup, they, um, th there are a lot of similarities between a record label investing in an artist and a VC investing in a startup. The difference is the record label can take a way more predatorial position because they argue that there's higher risk. I actually think the risk is kind of similar. Um, the difference is that with a company, a company can outlive its founders uh, and artists can't outlive him or herself or themselves. So the, the VC, you know, the label is kind of stuck with whatever their investment is in, in that one individual or in that group of individuals. Whereas a, a VC invests in a, in a team and, and an execution concept that may change over time. And that's okay. It's not like they're losing their value. So um, in my mind, I had kind of seen what was happening in the tech world from some of my friends. And I was like, this, all these deals are so unfair. I'm never going to sign these um, because they're so predatorial and like, what's, what's the purpose of signing a record deal? So that's like kind of another question. Um, there's usually two reasons why an artist does it. Number one, they need the liquidity. They need money up front to be able to pursue their passion. Otherwise they can't live a healthy lifestyle and live the lifestyle they want to live. So that need for instant liquidity is usually like historically why a lot of artists will sign record deals. The second reason is distribution. You know, historically record labels have marketing and distribution resources that the, you know, an artist couldn't achieve on their own. Um, that's since changed pretty significantly with algorithmic playlisting, with TikTok, with all these different platforms. And so in 2020, record labels are probably less relevant than ever before. And they're hanging on with a thread based on the catalog that they own. So they have all this power because they own the masters of all these like really older, you know, not older, but like even stuff from the nineties and the early OOs, like they own the, the rights to those songs that people still want to listen to. So they still kind of maintain this big brother, you know, position in the music world. Um, but I was kind of always of the perspective that I don't have to follow that model. And, you know, a decade later, the fact that I'm still able to perform and my songs are still out there and people are still listening is I think proof that it's not, you know, a necessary path that every artist has to take. Right. And, and you seem super methodical with all of your thinking from dropping out to going about being an independent artist. Like you mentioned these two things, the two aspects that, would you know lead people to sign a record deal being the liquidity 
and the distribution and yet you kind of you know you like you said you were making more than you would have made at, at blackrock and so you didn't need the liquidity as desperately as as some up-and-coming artists might and then exactly. on, the on the distribution side you realized that you had the power of the internet which you know is somewhat obvious now even to most still isn't but um back then like the idea of being an independent artist distributing on soundcloud getting a following on snapchat uh you know spreading your music on facebook that was like super novel uh and unknown it wasn't and, obvious right yeah and so how much of of your career do you think you can attribute to actually your business mind versus obviously, <laughs> obviously you make great music but like you're putting the pieces together very early um building your brand and now obviously you're a world famous musician um you you mentioned that a lot of artists like the longevity falls short because they don't have the kind of fiscal literacy or, or whatever it might be but like could you have even made it to where you are in the first place do you think so i think that being a musician is very similar to anything else in life and it requires two skill sets um number one is the actual left brain creativity which without it you can only go so far um, there have been a lot of musicians that like have no left brain creativity pay off a lot of other people to do their shit for them and still build a brand but even even those artists they still have to have like the creative vision for their own identity and they have to know what other like what consumers are going to you know relate to so even if they're not good at making music a lot of people can get away with just coming up with a powerful brand and pushing that out to the world and seeing success um, but as a creative if your goal is to make music and to for that creativity to resonate um, you kind of do need to have this base level of you got to kind of be good right <laughs> you kind of have to be good at making music or you can find, pay someone who you think is good to make it for you which a lot of people do um, but th those are kind of the two necessary variables in being a successful musician. The other side of it is, you know, either your team or your own work ethic or the combination of both where, you know, in 2020 or even five years ago, there are so many variables in like what makes a successful musical career. And it depends on the type of like, really depends on how many dependencies you have as a musician. So like a singer who can't produce the beats is dependent on finding people to produce the beats, right? I myself, because I just produce beats, um, I also sing and write lyrics, but I, I, I haven't really sang on too much of my own stuff yet. I'm forced to find, you know, to rely on that dependency of finding good vocalists. Thankfully, there are way more good vocalists out there than there are good producers. So if you're a singer, it's actually way more difficult to make it than if you're a good producer. A good producer can also like get, get paid to do stuff for other artists pretty frequently, even if they're not working on their own career. So it's like way more monetizable to be good at the science than it is to just have a good voice, probably because it's a more scarce skill set. Um, so, so yeah, I think number one, you actually have to be good. But number two, you have to like, I mean, every, every artist is a startup. You have to assemble a team of people that can execute lots of different strategies while you're staying creative because you can't, separate your mind all the time into like the marketing and into actually making the records. You have to have a team of people that you trust to execute on your behalf and to execute within your vision. And, and I think that's really hard 
Um, I think that's like the biggest challenge in, in kicking off a career. And for me, when I was younger, like now I, I, I don't have to be as crazy on the marketing side because I'm happy where I am in, in my space in the universe as an artist. Like I wouldn't necessarily care if I became any bigger than I am, you know, per se. I, I care a lot more that my music resonates with people because I'm at that point in my life. But at the time when I was younger, I was relentless. Like I would, like you said, um, it was the early days of Facebook and SoundCloud. Facebook didn't have a, a, a limiter on their distribution, right? Like if you liked my page, you were seeing my shit. And that was great. To being able to take advantage of that was so powerful at the time because the impressions, um, the pure impressions were, were, you know, extensive. And I would just like wake up in the morning. At night I'd work on my music from like 8 to 3 a.m. And then in the morning I'd be on email with every major blog and every like try to get whatever distribution I could myself without signing the label deal and like leaving it up to them, which is what a lot of artists do. They'll, they'll sign the deal, they'll send the music in and then they won't worry about the marketing. They'll just assume the label will take care of it. In my case, I was like, fuck it. I'm literally going to reach out to everyone, establish a personal relationship and connection with people, you know, hopefully get them to like what I have to say with my music and get them to believe in me and believe in my story. And it's hard to do that when you're doing it through someone else. Um, so that's kind of, that was my perspective early on is I just needed to like go. And I felt like there was this opportunity where there weren't that many US-based DJs. Dance music was just starting to grow in America. It was obviously big in Europe already, but like Avicii was just getting popular at the time. And I saw this huge void for an American DJ. Um, it was really just Skrillex at the time and Cascade and Diplo. And that was it, I mean, there was no one else. So I just tried to spearhead my way into that space early on. Um, which in hindsight was a really good decision because now, of course, everyone wants to be a DJ. Um, but at the time, it was still early. It's funny you talk about kind of your day to day in that time. And uh, I don't want to botch it, but I think uh, I know it was Paul Graham's essay. I forget what it was called exactly. I think it's makers versus manager schedule or something like that. And it's basically about how different schedules look between someone who's busy making and someone who's busy managing. And it sounds like, and he talks about how, you know, for someone who needs to do both, like, a founder CEO type who wants to still be driving the vision, but also has a lot to manage. It can be beneficial to kind of split either your days or your weeks or whatever it might be into like these different segments where uh, in one part you might have this back to back to back busy work. Um, not that it's not real work, but it's like business type stuff. And then you set aside large blocks of time for the creative work. And it sounds like you spent a lot of time maybe consciously or not, um, devoting your evenings and like working till 3am kind of like a madman, I assume to, to produce the best possible creative that you could in, in terms of music, which was your outlet. And then at the same time, you're waking up and working like a business person, kind of getting this stuff out and making sure it gets eyeballs. Exactly. And what's funny is I've gotten worse at it over time because I'm going to bed earlier and earlier. So my creative time has been crunched a little bit more. So I'm actually like more lately, I'm forced to, um, adjust a little bit because I, I don't have the stamina as I did 10 years ago. Not, not that I'm that old. I'm going to be 30 in four months, but um, I still definitely don't have the stamina that I did when I was 21. So it's, it's, it's an adjustment. And I think you're right. Like I, I'm constantly learning how to block my time better. Um, even like this podcast is, is a, is a call that's more entertaining for me within, you know, I have a family thing after it, but then I had like three other calls before it. 
I try to block all that time close together so that like after five or six o'clock, I can focus on music stuff. Um, but then some days that doesn't always work out, unfortunately, especially because in this environment, there's like so much is changing in my industry. I think that this is not to say, this is not to be like, woe is me, because by no means do I mean that. But I do think that music industry is probably one of the harshest, has suffered one of the more harsher impacts from COVID, just given the fact that like, it's the one thing that isn't really televised as much. And that requires a lot of people to be in a small space together. Um, like sports can still be televised, right, without the audience. And it's still interesting. Um, but music is probably not as interesting when you just watch it. Um, this has been kind of seen as, as like these digital concerts were super popular in the beginning of COVID. And there's been this massive fall off of, of viewership um, because it's just not interesting. So people want to be there. They don't necessarily care to watch it. So, yeah, I think like, there, you know, it's been it's been a really interesting six months since COVID hit because the music industry was just rocked. And it's kind of forcing everyone to rethink about to rethink how they approach their monetization mechanics as artists, but also like it's kind of, it's been a little bit difficult to be creative because I just haven't necessarily been inspired given the, given the circumstances. Um, and, and so it's tricky. I think a lot of other artists are struggling with that. I am as well. And so it's like sometimes podcasts like this where I can vocalize my thoughts um, are helpful, and like help release this like tension in my brain um, of, of, of worry, <laughs> so to speak. Yeah, well, I'm glad to, to help, you know, play a part in inspiration any way I can. It's, it's awesome talking with you. Uh, I want to talk about, you, you know, you obviously mentioned COVID uh, has shifted the landscape to some extent. Uh, and I think in a lot of industries, it's accelerated their track to the future. But what's underappreciated is that like, you know, the fact that people can't be within six feet of each other and, and all of the virus specific related changes are not natural like yes we might have been headed towards more of a remote work culture but not one where people can't go into the office two or three days a week if they want to or whatever it might be um and i don't know if that's affecting music as well like the obvious would be that there's no live events and like yes music might have gone more digital but there would have continued to be concerts um more broadly than covid even uh and i, I want to get into crypto at, at some point and and it might be involved to some degree in your answer to this but would love to hear your perspective on like the next 10 years call it the 2020s for the music industry and how things from your perspective are set to kind of evolve yeah that's that's a really good question i think that the music industry is like, like you said there are a lot of other industries that are adapting pretty well to this digital culture music is inherently you know something that's a collective experience and Spotify has kind of already revolutionized the way we consume music digitally. Um, there, there aren't too many new ways that can manifest outside, like from a pure consumption of music standpoint, like streaming is probably the end all in that regard. But I do think there are deeper ways that fans can connect with music, which is something that I'm exploring via, you know, distributed ledger tech. And we'll, we'll dive into that in a second, but so much of music is, is collective experience in real life. Um, and so it's like really difficult. Uh, I don't think there has been that much headway within the music industry of like new ideas that adapt to COVID. I mean, I've heard a lot of them, but I don't believe in a lot of them, right? Like people are trying to create the Netflix of concerts, which I like don't think is interesting at all. Um, people are trying to, you know, 
do these drive-in shows, which is basically a diluted experience that people are paying the same price for. So it's not even something that we're really exploring because we feel that um, why give fans a half-assed show when, when we can just wait till this is over. What about while, just while you're on the subject, uh, like VR, is that something that you've talked about at all? So I actually, funny enough, like I did a call yesterday with uh, a guy that created this, like basically VR world on Ethereum and it's fucking awesome. Like it, it works and it's like crazy how it already works pretty well. I still think there's like a pretty big barrier to entry for a lot of people in VR. Um, but I do think that in the future, VR concerts will be more popular. I just don't know if it's like, I think it's over a longer period of time horizon. I don't think it's like a next two year thing. I think it's the next five to 10 year thing personally. So while we're exploring it, um, there's just nothing that compares to that personal connection at a show. And so, so, so yeah, so I guess kind of jumping off of that to the next part, what I was going to mention is um, I've just been exploring ways to add a layer of consumption of the art that I create. So in the past, I guess what I mean by that is in the past, there's only been like two ways that most people can interact or three ways that most people can interact with an artist that they like. One on social media, right? Like following their lives, um, interacting with them over, you know, social platforms like Snapchat, Instagram, TikTok, whatever. That's one way to interact, but it's actually a very shallow form of interaction. Um, they're usually very quick interactions and usually the fan follows you and then it's it's a passive kind of consumption where like you'll be on a TikTok feed or an Instagram feed and you'll scroll past one of your favorite artists posts and you'll like consume it and then you'll move on. It's not like you're actively seeking to engage on a social platform with a musician. Um, unless you're like a super fan following Bieber, but like, you know, those do exist. But like in, in general, the, the, the deepest way to connect with a musician is by listening to their music more so than, um, you know, following them on social media. So even for me, like, I have a lot of favorite artists that I don't even follow on social media. It's like a secondary thought, right? Um, the reason why I love certain artists is because of the music that they make more than, you know, their daily activities and their like viral shit that they create on TikTok, right? So the, the first layer of interacting with an artist has been, you know, social identity layer, which is interesting, but like not, you know, not a way to create a deeper connection with a fan. And it's, um, it's not like music specific, right? Exactly. It's more identity specific. It's not music specific. So there are a lot of artists that like have these huge online identities, but like their music is probably more, and it's all opinion. It's all subjective. Right. But I, I do think that there's certain artists, you know, the deeper of a connection you can create with a fan, the longer your career. Whereas like old town road is a great example of an internet viral song. I don't know in three years, how many people are going to be looking for the next little Nas X song and be so excited about it coming out. Because I mean, this is the you know this is the typical uh, problem of a one-hit wonder mentality, right? A lot of artists like try to create that one hit, and they get stuck in this problem of like their social identity is way bigger than their connection with fans across their music. So, um, so yeah, I guess there's this one layer which is social for for a musician. The other layer is the music itself that people listen to and and you know on a regular basis if somebody chooses to listen to something, it's 10 times more powerful than if they come across it in a playlist and they like it. If someone actively goes and listens to something, they generally like listen to it a lot more and keep going back to it than if they just hear it on a playlist and like check it off and like it. And then there's the occasional conversion where 
they hear it on the playlist and they like it so much that they keep listening to it. But that's, that, that happens sometimes, but it doesn't happen that often. Um, so like relatively speaking to the whole listening experience, right? That is how most people discover music these days, but you might like find 10 things that you like, but you're probably only going to go back to one or two of those 10 things based on what you like the most. So, um, so yeah, the music itself is kind of that second layer of connection. And the third layer of connection is the live show, which doesn't exist. So I've kind of been exploring this fourth layer, this like fourth dimension, so to speak, of connecting with a fan base. And um, Tim Westergren, who the, the ex-CEO of Pandora and I had a conversation about this a couple of years ago when I started to get more active in the blockchain space. And we were talking about how there's no way to measure the emotional value that a song creates for one fan, not for like a lot of fans, but social metrics and followers online on social media don't at all measure the depth of connection that an artist has with their, you know, their loyal fan base. The perfect example of this is, is an artist that you might know, whether you listen to electronic music or not, Rufus Dussol, um, headlining Coachella, one of the biggest electronic artists of our generation. Um, they only have 3 million monthly listeners on Spotify and like less than a couple hundred thousand followers on Instagram. Yet the connection their fans have with them is so strong. That's why they're headlining Coachella. Right. So, you know, it's, it's, um, there's this kind of immeasurable value creation from music that hasn't like, there's been no way to capture that value. And Tim Westergren said this to me and it like really resonated. He was like, in all my years at Pandora, I still didn't figure out a way to like capture all this emotional value that a song creates for a person. And like so many of my songs have been used. People, people walk down the aisle to the acoustic version of one of my songs, How You Love Me, which was my big hit in 2014. So many people walk down the aisle to that acoustic version of the song. What's the value in that? Like they're doing it for free, but what value do they actually feel from doing that? It hasn't really been capturable in the past. So one of the things I've been exploring is like, how do you let the public invest in you as an artist. It's not really something that's been accessible in the past. It also hasn't been profitable in the past. So if you looked at music cash flows five years ago without streaming, they'd be pretty low. Not many people were buying music. Also, not many people were paying for streaming memberships. Now there's this huge influx of capital that's going to not as much artists, more so record labels, right? Because record labels have signed these really predatorial deal deals with artists. And there's this false narrative that artists don't get paid by Spotify. It's simply not true. It's just that the artists sign bad deals and a larger percentage of that is going to the label and not to the artist. Um, this is like an angle that no one ever really talks about. But in my case, I've seen like 50X revenue growth in my like royalties in the past three to five years, just because more people are paying for streaming services and I own a lot of my rights. So I said to myself, well, music assets are, are things that like humans have a real emotional connection to, but have never been able to invest in. Like, but they also produce similar returns to real estate returns. Like there's no depreciation factor, but like you invest in a building, it produces rent, which is a cash flow, And eventually you may sell that building and, you know, 1031 it to another building or, you know, take the profit, pay capital gains, whatever. And it's been a tried and true way to invest in a, in a public need. Um, Right now, the only investors in, in, or at least in the past like decade, the primary investor in music is record labels. Now there's like other tools like royalty exchange and other, other products that enable like regular people to invest in song royalties, but it hasn't really been normalized yet. 
and it hasn't been like pitched to the public in a way that they understand. So people are like stuck investing in, on Robinhood and equities that they don't understand, but why not give them the ability to invest in an artist that they love? And then, in, you know, in turn, if they invest as little as $10 in an artist's music that they actually could earn cash flows from, they're even more incentivized to distribute it to their network. So it creates this positive feedback loop. This is something that I've been exploring pretty extensively. Like how do we enable at, like the public to access music asset investments? It's never been done. Um, so the first like kind of obvious answer to that is via distributed ledger technology. Um, and that's just because it's actually the most efficient way to distribute royalties to fans. It's also an easy way to like provide micropayments and incentives to fans to do things, bounties, stuff like that. So it's something that I've been exploring for like three, four years. The issue has been the regulatory environment is so uncertain and investing in a song is definitely like a song is definitely a security. There's an expected cash flow outcome. So it's not like, uh, you know, very clear utility. And for those who are familiar with some historical blockchain world terms there, you know, when, when all these products started popping out of the earth, no one even talked about them being securities. They were always just, oh, this is a utility. This is a utility, meaning that you actually gain something emotional out of, you know, or, or something beneficial out of investing in these products, these protocols. Um, the SEC very quickly threw down their hammer and said, a lot of these are probably securities because there's this expectation of return or speculation. And these products actually don't even do anything yet. And they're probably right. A lot of these, you know, protocols and tokens don't do anything yet that that's rational or reasonable in the real world. So the idea of investing in a song via token um, is probably a security, which adds this whole layer of cost. When you think about tokenizing a song, there's like extensive legal costs in doing that. So one of the things that I'd like to be really specific, what I'm exploring is how do we create the safe for equity, like the safe and equity investments, which is like an industry standard now, how do we create that for investing in a song so that there aren't like these legal barriers to an artist being able to raise their own capital? basically fulfilling that role that a record label has, like providing liquidity, why shouldn't a fan be able to access that liquidity from their fan base? Like that, this is something that I think is extremely interesting and could like totally take the music industry into a new, you know, evolutionary state. Um, and the reason why I think this is so relevant is because of this great statistic that came out in Rolling Stone a couple of years ago, that of the $40 billion recorded music business, um, only 12% ends up in the artist's hands. So there's 88% of that $40 billion industry that can be disrupted by literally cutting out middlemen that are probably irrelevant. And so I've been spending a lot of time exploring that. Um, I think it's a way longer exploration. It's going to take some time, but I am going to issue equity in my next album to fans. And I have, I'm thankful to have a friend who has the legal resources to do it without charging me a shit ton of money because it would be so expensive if I were to do it on my own. So we're going to do an interesting experiment and see how much demand there is for investing in my future album. And we're also going to show fans, you know, statistics on how the last album performed, which to give you an idea, I came out with an album in 2018 and it's already generated over 750,000 in total revenue in two years. So like the valuations of these albums could be pretty high for, for an artist who wants to raise capital. Um, and I'm like of the smaller league, like I have 2 million monthly listeners. Um, there are a lot of artists with 10 million monthly listeners. So there's, there's this whole movement towards this trend. It's just, there haven't been any tools that exist 
especially tools that artists and managers understand because it's a very like tech oriented mindset um, that I take when I approach this stuff. But I'm definitely down to be an experiment and see uh, how it goes. So far, there's been like all my tech friends are like super interested in investing in this. And like, it's probably the money that we want to raise is probably like already all committed for because it's an interesting experiment. The question is, if we do it successfully, will other artists want to try it? Um, and I think at that point, it's really powerful. But so that's kind of like my long-term vision for music and how I like want to be a part of the story and how the music industry is disrupted. Um, it's something that I like spend a lot of time thinking about every day. Um, but the short-term vision is more, uh, like I was saying, this like fourth layer of capturing value. Obviously like fans investing in a song enables them to like capture value with the artist, incentivizes all parties to promote it. And it creates like a more emotional connection for a fan to a song that they might already demand or want. Um, and so one of the things that I've been doing in the short term to prove this model is the NFT space uh, or the, you know, the non-fungible token slash digital art world. So only in the past three months, my art director and I have been making these audiovisual loops and selling limited editions of them on Ethereum. And the demand has been absolutely insane for fans to actually have this deeper connection to a song than just a stream. They actually own it. They own this piece of art that exists on the internet. And it's something that's like really hard to wrap your head around, but we've done, I mean, in the past three months, my art director and I have done $78,000 in digital art sales. Or not three months, sorry, 35 days. We've done $78,000 in digital art sales. So it's like, there's demand for this stuff. There's demand for fans to have a deeper connection to the art that they consume. It's just, it hasn't manifested yet in any particular way. So these are kind of like, those are the two things I'm exploring and I could talk about them for another like five hours, <laughs> but um, I'm kind of exploring number one, like giving, giving the public access to investing in music assets. I think that's super interesting. I think doing that via distributed ledger tech is probably the most efficient way of doing it as well, especially from a royalty distribution standpoint. And two, I've been exploring this concept of like scarce media because we've always been trained that like media should reach the most amount of people instead of thinking that media can be exclusive and owned by a select few. Um, and it's actually how like music always used to be experienced in the olden days. Like it's not like Mozart did a massive concert for the whole population. Like he would get hired to do small recitals in like private homes who could afford his performance. Um, I think that NFTs are just like the digital form of that. It gives people a unique experience that they're excited about because they're so connected to the artist that's creating the art. So, yeah, I mean, I'm like super stoked about all this stuff. I could talk about it for ages, um, but it's it's a fun sandbox to play in. Uh, I love the vision and the concept, everything you're talking about. I'm, I'm not in the music industry directly, but like I find myself almost inspired by all of these different angles you're taking to try to monetize the industry and not for the purpose of just making money, but you want to you want to spread your art to as many people as possible. You want to be able to focus on creating the best music that you can and whether that means monetizing you know by selling a piece of you know an nft a piece of uh visual art with some music behind it to one person and monetizing that way to enable you to keep doing what you do or giving people a share in your album so that a bunch of people can collectively kind of support uh the artist that that makes them you know gives them that emotional value that you talked about um there's a lot to unpack there and I, I definitely need to listen back to it again to, uh, to kind of <laughs> yeah. process some of it. Uh, but it's, it's obvious that you've been thinking about all of this quite a bit and, uh, 
I'm excited. I think that to me, like I, I had heard of you as an artist before. I didn't know that there was this other side of you. I didn't even know that. <laughs> everyone, that. everyone says that in every conversation. They're like, oh, this is a DJ who, uh, DJ like does tech, like does tech stuff, like what? And everyone's always so surprised. Um, I, I love hearing you say it because I, I love hearing everyone say it. I think it's, I kind of have an uphill, uphill battle as an entrepreneur because there's this like predisposition that I'm like just some DJ. <laughs> But yeah, I, you, you get you get pigeonholed, right? And I think it's like one of the worst things. It's like you ever read an article about someone, regardless of like who they are, or what they did. Like you mentioned Lil Nas X earlier, and like the poor guy for the rest of his life is going to be the guy, you know, the artist behind Old Town Road or the rapper behind Old Town Road. And there's like no escaping that. Or like Macaulay Culkin's always the Home Alone kid. Uh, and you know, more broadly than that, you're to most people a DJ or a producer, a musician more broadly. But I actually think that there's enough, like, you know, who am I to say? But uh, I think that the track, you know, you're so young, uh, the track that you're on, I could see you becoming better known for the way you kind of revolutionize the industry and um, bring together finance and tech and music and with crypto kind of being the underlying theme as well. Uh, I'm just excited to see what happens because it sounds like, all of these skills that you have and all, and this interest across a number of different, um, you know, a number of different large, super impactful spaces is going to come together. And I think it's going to be interesting. And obviously you're connected with other artists and other people in tech. Uh, and I'm just excited to see what happens. So, uh, I it, man, I, yeah. I really appreciate that. Yeah. I know we're, uh, we're coming up on, on time and I'm excited, uh, never done this before on the podcast, but we're going to have some music from you following uh, this conversation. Uh, you know, I, I hope we can do a, a part two at some point or certainly could talk for a, a lot longer. And it sounds like you could sh certainly share a lot more about your vision and, uh, and I'm sure we'll do so elsewhere as well. But uh, last question for you sure. on the, on the music front specifically, um, how do you see yourself evolving you know, you talked about the industry, but how do you see yourself evolving on the music front? Uh, you, you obviously started as, as more of a mashup kind of fraternity party DJ, developed into a producer with no dependencies, like you said, a lot of creative liberties and, and freedom to kind of do what you want. You mentioned that you, you know, I, I heard that you played a lot of instruments growing up. You mentioned that you sing a bit. Um, do you see your music evolving as well as you get older? Yeah, I think, you know, I made a lot of sacrifices early on creatively um, to try to reach that widespread distribution. Like I didn't take as many creative risks that I wanted to because I wanted to be able to sustain a certain lifestyle making music, which was like always really important to me. Um, I didn't want to get stuck, like not having something else to fall back on after music. If I, you know, if I took too many risks, um, which is a, like, like you had mentioned earlier, like maybe an over overly rational perspective towards something that's creative, but um, it's inevitable. It's in my blood, <laughs> like super, trying to stay super logical and rational about everything, even though I love being creative. Um, yeah, I think that's a really good question. I think that my music will evolve. You know, uh, I am singing on a couple records that are coming out, which is like super exciting. I've never had the balls to do it in the past. Um, and I, because of COVID hitting at the time that it did, it was actually like right around the, my decade anniversary of touring. I'm 29 now. I started touring when I was 19. Um, I stopped touring this year in March 
And after 10 years of kind of doing the same thing, I definitely took like three months of a break. I kind of like didn't do much, just, you know, relaxing kind of thought, try to figure out what my next purpose was. Not that I'll ever stop making music, but I do think that every artist, when you've done one type of sound in the past, you don't want to necessarily do it again because you've already been there. You've already expressed that feeling. You've already achieved that musical goal. So I haven't necessarily known what my next musical goal is yet, to be honest. Um, but I think I'm spending most of my time exploring those two kind of ideas of digital art and public access to music assets. And in the past three months, like that's actually been taking up a lot of my brain space because music is so important. It's so important with, with music that you actually tour off of it and give people a live setting to listen to it, at least for, for the type of music that I make, like the live component is so important, but I haven't been thinking too much about the music that I'm making. Um, and I've been thinking a lot more about these disruptive business ideas. That being said, I think a big part of that is because I just haven't been inspired. Um, but that's starting to shift in the past couple of weeks as I've seen some of this digital art perform really well. Um, I'm more and more excited to make, you know, to push the musical boundaries a little bit because I have the time to now versus in the past when my studio time was pretty limited because I was always on tour. So musically, I don't have an answer right now on like what I'm going to pursue next. I know I'm like experimenting with a lot of different ideas um, internally, but I think, you know, I'll definitely start singing on stuff, which is exciting for fans to hear that voice. I'm also like making like some like super techie underground stuff because I've always wanted to and like, why not? Um, in the past, I was constantly, most artists are constantly chasing the next show, chasing the tickets, chasing the relevance. And COVID kind of like just brought this like great positive reality to me that like, I don't have to chase anymore. I've done this for 10 years. I don't have to like, my fans aren't going to not listen if I take three months off, if I take a year off. They've, they've established this strong connection to me that when I do come back with something different, hopefully they're still going to love it. Um, but it was hard for me to gain that perspective without COVID. I was, I was constantly chasing relevance. I think most artists do. Um, so yeah, I think I'm like kind of still in the stages of figuring out what's next musically, but I, I think people are going to enjoy it because it's definitely going to be from a deeper place when it comes out. Appreciate the the transparency there. And I do want to mention, like you, you say that you haven't been inspired lately with everything going on, but you know, outside looking in, it seems like while you might not be inspired totally in the musical direction and, and evolving that you're certainly, you certainly seem inspired on, on the yeah. business front and, awesome. and it takes just as much, cre I mean, not just as much, I, I don't want to downplay anything, yeah. but yeah. it takes creativity to rethink an industry. Uh, it might just be a little bit more left brain than, than some of the stuff you've become famous for in the past. Um, but I, I think it's awesome and I, I'm looking forward to seeing how it all evolves. So uh, with that, I'm going to wrap up here. Uh, I'll give you the last word to, uh, you know, tell people where to follow you or, or find you online and everything like that. But uh, after you do that, rather than going into my typical outro music, we'll go into a, uh, some music by you. Awesome. I'll, 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 uh, we'll, we'll do a little chill, chill mix, not something too heavy for the listeners. And, uh, and thanks so much for having me, man. This was awesome. Welcome. You just stepped into Blau's house. Get ready for the ride.